Well, um, I was going to call on Adam in case I failed up here, but I might have to go to Sam just in case I get teary-eyed. So I, I do have Kleenex. Thanks, Jeremy, for getting us started this morning. But as we think about this, the last line, one of those last lines, it says, who else could rescue me from my failing? Who else would offer his only son? Who else invites us to call him father? It's only a holy God. And here this morning, we're going to look at that holy God in 1 Samuel. We're going to be continuing through um, 1 Samuel. We'll be in chapter 13 this morning. And it has been a while since we've been in 1 Samuel. And um, for those of you who haven't been around, Ben Abrahamson and I have been meandering our way through First uh, Samuel, um, we're going to continue frolicking here this morning through chapter 13, and eventually, eventually, someday, Lord willing, we'll get to chapter 14 and further on. But as you, you may not have been here for the whole time, I just wanted to remind you of a few of the key points this morning as we get into First Samuel. And as you remember, 1 Samuel documents the events surrounding the transition of Israel from a group of loosely affiliated tribes or tribes together to establishment of a united kingdom with a king. And the book of 1 Samuel starts with the raising up of God's prophet and priest Samuel out of miraculous circumstances. And then the first seven chapters or so deal with Samuel and his life. Chapter 8 begins the transition as the people of Israel, they give it the demand for a king. They desire to be ruled by a king so that they can be like all of the other nations. And then chapter 9, Samuel is commissioned by God to go and to anoint the very first king of Israel. And we've been all the way through chapter 12 as, as the king was Saul, Saul, the first king was anointed. Samuel in chapter 12 kind of said goodbye. He's starting to exit the scene. And then in chapter 13, 14, and 15, we come to what seems to be the rise and fall of the first king of Israel. Now, it's a three-part thing, three-part series. We're going to have to do chapter 13. We'll do chapter 14, and then we'll do chapter 15. So for those of you who don't like cliffhangers, you can just read chapter 14 and 15, and you'll know. And for those of you who want to wait... Coming in October, or, or sooner. But as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to see a man who was faced with the greatest trial of his life, Saul. And as we look at the details of this story, we're going to see that we are not that unlike Saul. And in fact, as I've been doing this study, I keep relating to this man over and over again, even though I don't really want to. Right? He was really tall. I relate to that. He was also handsome. I don't relate to that. But as we look at the episodes in the life of Saul this morning, I want to focus your attention on a theme that runs through this text. And the theme is this. God is calling his people to a sacrificial life of faith to display his surpassing blessings to the nations. God is calling his people to a sacrificial life of faith to display his surpassing blessings to the nations. And as we look at 1 Samuel, if it happened to be there already, let me go ahead and read 1 Samuel chapter 13, I'll read the whole thing. We're, I'm going to be reading out of the ESV. You might notice that there is, might be some slight variances if you have another translation or an older translation of the ESV. 1 Samuel 13. Saul was dot, dot, dot years old when he began to reign, and he reigned dot, 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 and two years over Israel. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. 
Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard, it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and the people following him trembled. He waited seven days in the time, of, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed at Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned to Orpha, the land of Shual, the other tur- company turned towards Beth Haran, and another company turned towards the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found in, throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords and spears, but every one of the Israelites went down from the Philistines to sharpen his plowshares, his mattock, his axe, and his, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Well, as Isaiah says in chapter 40, verse 8, the grass withers the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's turn to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We come to you, a holy God. And we, as sinful people, come through to you through the blood of your son, Jesus. And Father, this morning, we admit that we're frail and that we're weak, and we ask that even this morning that you strengthen us. We ask that you guide us. We ask that you open our eyes to see the glory of your truth in this passage. Open our ears that we might understand. We ask that you open our hearts to your truth. Shape and fashion us even this morning. And we pray this in the name of your son. Amen. Well, I don't know if you remember the very first time that you read chapter 13 of Samuel, but I do, I remember the first time I encountered verse 1, and before we get into what's going on in this chapter, we should probably deal briefly with this issue that I read in verse 1. 
Now, I just, the ESV had just come out. I don't know if you remember that, but it was a real exciting time for some of us. And we were very excited. And I, I ordered my ESV copy right away, and as soon as it came, I, I, I went to the mailroom in college, and I like opened it, I was super excited. It's actually right here, I have it, right? Here, it's this one. And so I had it right there. I went to class that day in college. I set out my desk. I, I, I was like super excited. Couldn't wait for Bible class. I was like ready to open up, open up and, and like read it because it was going to be like more special or something. And so as, as I was had there on my desk, the professor walked by and he says, oh, I see you have the new ESV. And I said, yeah, I'm glad you noticed. I was kind of hoping that he would. He says, what do you think of it? And I had no idea. I had just got it. And so, and so I was determined that by the end of the semester, I was going to read through the whole thing, so if he asked me again, I could answer the question. And so I, I, was, I worked really hard. I read and I read. And when I got to chapter 13 of, of Samuel, I saw this weird, Saul was dot, dot, dot years old. And he read dot, dot, dot in two years over Israel. And it kind of stuck with me. That was the first time I had seen that. But I plowed on. I continued on. Um, because, well, when the professor asked how I thought, what I thought of the Bible, he said, well, let me know what you think of it. And so I read it cover to cover, and I got, went back to class, had it there on my desk, and I was waiting for him to ask me the question again, what'd you think of it? Well, in case you're wondering, you're wondering he never asked, so I never told him. <laughs> and, but as, as I was looking through this, uh, passage this morning or this week as I was preparing, I remember this passage again. I, I wasn't bothered about it by the, the first time I read it, and, but this last week I figured I probably should figure out what's going on here with these dot, dot, dots, if you happen to have that in your text. And so First uh, Samuel 13, 1 says, and Saul was dot, 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 asterisk years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for two asterisk years over Israel. And the footnotes, if you have footnotes in your Bible, they might read something like this. The number is lacking in the Hebrew and the Septuagint. Or you might have something like, two may not be the entire number, something may have dropped out. Now, I don't know about you, but you know, reading this for the first time, this was new to me, because those were the footnotes in the ESV, and I was shocked. And, and as shocked and upset as I was when I first read that in college, I waited until last week to figure out the details. And so I didn't learn Hebrew in those years. I relied upon um, a couple of commentators, John Woodhouse and Daniel Tishmur, to help me understand what's going on in this passage. And so let me briefly kind of give you the recap of what's going on here. There are three explanations. Um, you can choose which one you prefer, and by the order you can probably see which one I prefer. The first explanation is this, that the original numbers have been lost over time because of scribal error in copying the text. The numerals that would complete the accession formula, the one that said Saul was blank years old and reigned for blank years, was lost in transmission. Some translations include a, a dot, 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 or an ellipsis in the place of the missing numbers, as did the early ESV text, which is what I read from this morning. Other texts have inserted numbers that would seem to fit the passage, such as Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Now they fill in that language based on uh, Paul's, uh, Paul's uh, sermon in Acts chapter 13, where he tells the people in Antioch, he tells the Jews there that Saul reigned for 40 years. And so they use that number and insert that it also attempts to address the fact that Saul, nearing the beginning of his rule, right here in this passage, has a son who is old enough to lead a thousand fighting men into battle. But one runs into trouble when attempting to reconcile that Saul, in the chapter before this, seemed to be a young man. At the, and he was a young man at the time of his own, own anointing, and that his son is old kind of makes this one a little bit awkward. The second explanation is that during the writing of 1 Samuel, the writer did not know the exact age of Saul, so the writer left a blank to come back to it and fill it in later once the information was found. The theory suggests that the writer didn't make it back to fill in the text to fill the gaps, and so the gaps remain. Proponents of this theory, uh, they cite the other chronicles, such as the Babylonians and whatnot, and they often omitted the numbers or the lengths of reigns and then came back to fill them in later. The third explanation is that this phrase isn't referring to an age at all. 
but is simply marking the passage of time from Saul's private anointing to his public coronation. The current ESV translation, if you happen to have it, says this, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, and then it goes into verse 2. This expression is slightly awkward in the translation because the starting point is implied. The phrasing would mean that a year had passed after Saul was anointed in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. And, the, and to the day he began to reign in 1 Samuel 15, or 11, 15. And that the two years then refers to the time that passed from his coronation in 11.15 to the events recorded in chapters 13 through 15. But as we think about that, um, the way that this passage begins, I want to, as we look at the rest of this passage, I want to let you know that I've divided this up into three different sections, verses 1 through 7, and that is obedience requires faith. Uh, verses 8 through uh, 12 is obedience requires suffering. Or, I'm sorry, obedience requires sacrifice. And then finally, obedience provides blessing. So as we look at this first section, obedience reveals faith. Saul had been king for a short period of time when he began raising his army. He said a thousand men under the leadership of his son Jonathan and 2,000 men were under his own leadership. There was with this select group of men, Saul begins to do what he was called to do. Remember when God raised up Saul to be king, as his purpose was in 1 Samuel 9, 16, the purpose for Saul being king was to deliver his people from the Philistines. Now, you may remember in chapter 10, after his private anointing by Samuel, Saul was given three signs and then instructed to attack the Philistine garrison or the Philistine outpost and then journey to Gilgal to wait for Samuel, who would then arrive within seven days. As you remember, all the way back there in chapter 8, Saul receives all of these signs, but he fails to attack the Philistine outpost. But now finally, here in chapter 13, verse 3, Jonathan attacks the outpost and defeats the Philistine garrison. Verse 4 tells us that all Israel heard of it, that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And then the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal, a rallying cry. The first attack had been made, and now the battle was going to come. This announcement warns the people to watch out because the Philistines are upset and are going to retaliate. If you look at the use of the word stench throughout the scriptures, not only does it refer to a smell, but it also suggests sometimes when a lesser power commits an offensive act against a much larger and more powerful group. There's often a hint of sneakiness in it or a violation of a truce that might have been understood but yet not written down. This is much like the younger brother attacking the oldest brother and hitting him without warning or provocation. And in the response of the Philistines, we see this sibling rivalry played out as the older brother, of course, responds with overwhelming violence to the younger brother. And that's what the Philistines did. They, they responded. And we should notice, not only did the Philistines respond with this overwhelming force, but we all should see, should see that the Philistines have permeated throughout the entire kingdom of Israel. They're moving with overwhelming numbers and impressive military strength. And as the Philistines responded, their forces are described to be like the sand upon the seashore. Though this may just be a figure of speech, this also happens to be Abraham's figure of speech. If you remember in Genesis 22, Abraham, as he was coming down from Mount Moriah, after being called by God to sacrifice his son, after his obedience to God, Abraham's faith was revealed and God provided another sacrifice to take the place of his son. And if you remember, on the way down the mountain, God promised Abraham a wonderful blessing. The, the blessing is this, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of its enemies. 
and all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed through you because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham displayed this faith in God's promises through his obedience and God blessed him because of it. Part of that blessing was to have descendants like the sand of the seashore and his descendants who would possess the gates of his enemies. But here we see in this passage that this phrasing is applied to the enemies of Israel. They are the ones like the sand on the seashore. Something is wrong here. Not only that, this overwhelming force encamps at Michmash. Now I see some of you looking at me, thinking, oh no, not another geography lesson, but it'll be brief. If you go back to look at verse 2, Saul and his 2,000 men, if you remember in verse 2, it says, they were encamped at Michmash. Now it seems that the Philistines are possessing the camps of the enemies. As they approached, Saul and Jonathan, their men, flee away. And the enemy possesses their former camp. Saul and his force, they retreat east to Gilgal, and the Philistines follow them, taking over their previous location. If you look at verse 6, verse 6 tells us that the people were so hard-pressed that they hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Sheer panic throughout the land of Israel before the advance of the Philistines. The fear is even so great that some of the people even crossed the Jordan River. Almost it appears as if they're fleeing the promised land. An unconquest of the land. Their situation seems to be rather hopeless. They're surrounded by a vast number of enemies. They're on the run. The promises of God seem to have been applied to the enemy who seems to be a prospering beyond belief. And this is the direct result of Jonathan and Saul's obedience by attacking the Philistines. This act of obedience leads to the greatest test of Saul's faith. And the question is, will Saul continue to cling to the revealed promises of God in obedience, in faith? Or will he seek an alternative to God's plan? If you look back to Samuel's farewell address in chapter 12, verse 14, Samuel outlines what Saul and the people must do in order to maintain the blessings of God. Notice what he says. He says, verse 14, if you fear the Lord and serve him, and obey his voice, and not rebel against the commandments of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but if you rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. And in this, in his hour of greatest trial, as his army is fleeing away before him, sneaking away, as people are unconquesting the land, they're fleeing the land, what is Saul going to do? He must decide if he believes in the promises of God. Now, for those of you here this morning, I'm not sure that you've ever had to face an army like this, 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore. But I would venture to guess that even here this morning, you might have found yourself surrounded by a sea of troubles. Maybe you found that your obedience to God's truth revealed in scripture has made your life uncomfortable. You might have found that God calls you to conduct yourself in a way that causes you to stand out. Whether it's pressures at work or pressures at home or at school, You will often find that when you are called to obey God's commands, these commands are often at odds with the world in which you live. Now, if we think forward to the the New Testament, we we remember that Jesus promised us that in this world, you will have trials. Because our lives as Christians should be marked by allegiance to our heavenly king, we are going to be treated the same way he was treated On earth. You see that the normal experience of the Christian is to lead a life marked by suffering and by trials. And we must decide daily, hourly, 
And sometimes, minutely, am I willing to trust in the promises of God? Now all that sounds rather terrifying, and, and you might be wondering, should the life of a Christian be marked by a dour sense of gloom and doom as we follow God's commands? One, one commentator responds to that question this way. God's provisions never stand alone. Every act of God's past provision brings with it a commitment for the present and promises for the future. These, in turn, these provisions and promises inevitably lead to commands that stipulate what our response to God should be. Thus, these commands depend on and express the reality of what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do on our behalf. God's demands correspond to his gifts, past, present, and future. End quote. This call to trust and obey God is in the present, in order that we might inherit God's promises for the future. It's solely based on what he has done for us in the past, which includes his ongoing commitment to us here and now. Our lives of faith and hope and love showcase God's sovereign grace, complete trustworthiness, and unending benevolence. Our obedience requires us to be reliant on God's sustaining grace to complete the work that he began in us. Well, let's move to verses 8 through 12 to see how Saul responds to this. And we'll see that obedience requires sacrifice. With his army trembling, Saul patiently awaits seven days for Samuel to arrive. With his army scattering, the feeling in Saul's camp must have been one of incredible fear as more and more people are leaking away in the night. Not only were they facing an overwhelming army of angry Philistines, but verse 22 casually mentions the detail that no one in the entire Israelite army had a spear. And there were only two swords to be found in the whole lands. And both of those belonged to the king and to his son. So not only was an army coming, they only had their farming tools to defend themselves. At some point on that seventh day, Saul had had enough and he called for the sacrifice to be brought and to be offered. Everyone is looking for him to lead in this position and so he steps up and he makes a decision not to wait for Samuel and to go ahead and seek the favor of the Lord through offering. And as soon as the burnt offering was offered, Samuel shows up. Saul, after having offered the first offering, he goes out immediately to meet Samuel, probably expecting him to be excited. He might have been expecting a commendation for taking actions and getting things started, getting the ball rolling, doing some action. But I don't think he was expecting to receive the sharp rebuke that he received. Samuel, as he comes in, walks into camp, surveys the scene and asks the question, what have you done? Clearly, Samuel knows what's going on. He clearly knows what's happening, but he's given the offender a chance to speak. And reminiscent of Adam's response to God in the garden, Saul refuses to take responsibility for his actions, and he gives a bunch of reasons. Well, the people were scattering. You were late. You didn't arrive when you said you would. The Philistines were preparing to come and attack us. And the final reason was, if the Philistines' attack was imminent, and if I had not sought the favor of the Lord, then things would have gone poorly. Therefore, therefore I acted. I forced, forced myself to offer the burnt offering. He had no choice. He was a victim. He had to act. He bears no responsibility. In the moment of his greatest test, his greatest trial, Saul abdicates 
his role as God's anointed king. Remember, he was to fear God. He was to serve him. He was to obey him and to not rebel against him. For the Lord had made Saul a king, but Saul had not made the Lord his God. And when it came down to a choice, Saul chose to fear his troops leaving and to fear the Philistine army's attack rather than to fear the Lord. Though what happened here to the first king of Israel saddens us, his choice probably doesn't surprise us. In fact, it probably reminds us of of what happened when Adam was first tempted in the garden. He was faced with that same choice as Saul. God's command in the garden was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you do, you will surely die. But if we reflect on the command not to eat, we should think also about what they were commanded to do. While they were commanded not to eat the fruit on the one hand, because it will lead to death, they were promised that if they ate all of the other fruits of all of the other trees, they would surely live in the presence of God. And in the moment of his greatest temptation, Adam also abdicates his responsibility, agreeing that if something is satisfying to the desires of the body, if it satisfies the lust of the eyes, and if it satisfies the desire to be like God, well, it can't be that bad. And Saul, in his moment of greatest trial, fails to realize that obedience requires sacrifice. For Saul to obey, he would have to do something that defied logic. With the nearby enemy mobilizing their army and his army fleeing, he needed to do something that would inspire his troops. That would inspire confidence in the people around him. He did the thing that human logic and wisdom would have suggested. To obey God would have required him to wait upon the timing of the Lord. He would have had to sacrifice his pride and his self-sufficiency. Saul was looking to what was seen, the movement of human armies, the fleeing of human armies, and not to what is unseen, the promise of God to deliver those who obey. One commentator states it this way, every command of God is built upon a promise from God. Therefore, every divine call to action or obedience is at the same time a divine summons to trust in God's promises through faith. The promises of God are commands in disguise and vice versa. God commands what he commands because he he promises what he promises. End quote. And here we must remember that as Saul rejects the promises of God, at the same time, he is disobeying the commands of God. And because God is perfectly righteous and holy, Saul's transgression must not go unpunished. And that's, what exactly, that's exactly what happens in verses 13 through 23, which remind us, reminds us that obedience receives blessing. While I've chosen to state this principle in the positive, Saul experiences the inverse. As we look at the consequences of his actions through the rest of the chapter, we see that there are consequences for him as a king and then consequences also for the nations. These consequences are going to be announced here in chapter 13 and and described here in chapter 13, but they'll be fully illustrated in chapters 14 and 15. So stay tuned. But Samuel's response to Saul's rationalization is, it's concise and even more powerful because of its precision. Look at verse 13. You have done foolishly, was the immediate response of Samuel. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. But here, as we see Samuel's words, we wonder, what commands did Saul break? If you look at the narrative, Saul receives a variety of commands that are explicitly named and others that are not. During the coronation of Saul in 
in chapter 10, verse 25, Samuel teaches the rights and duties of the kingship and seals them up in the record in a book and put, presents it and puts it before the Lord. If you look back to chapter 12, there are commands that are given to the people and to the king in verses 14 and 15. And verses 23 and 24, both command that the king and the people are to fear the Lord, to serve him, to listen to him, and to not rebel. And if you do, if you rebel against his commands, you will be swept away, you and your king. You might look back to the command in, in chapter 10, verse 8, to go to Gilgal after attacking the Philistines, and then to wait for seven days until I, that is Samuel, come to you. Though this happened sometime in the past, it seems that this command fits within this narrative as well. But if we look at Saul's protest, he seems to have a sense of what he did. He seems to recognize the command that he broke. He ends with, I sought the favor of the Lord. In the face of these overwhelming odds, Saul panics. He does not trust the Lord. He does not wait upon the Lord. He gave into the fear of losing his army. He gave into the fear of his enemies. He sought the Lord in his own way, in his own timing, and for the wrong reasons. His fear of man was greater than the fear of the Lord, and he was willing to sacrifice his relationship with the Lord so that he might gain military victory over his enemies. Saul is foolish because in Proverbs we are told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And because that proposition is true, we must also suggest that the inverse is true as well, that the fear of man is the beginning of foolishness. In his foolishness or fear of man, Saul forfeits his kingdom and his dynasty, the future blessings that would have come through his obedience. He will see a son be passed over as God gives the kingdom to another, a man after God's own heart. Not only that, there are personal consequences here as well, as, or there are consequences here for the nation as well. Look at verse 15. Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. Now that doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily a big deal to us, right? But as you remember, Samuel is the link of the Lord, link to the Lord. After his scathing rebuke, Samuel leaves. If you look at chapter 10, verse 8, Samuel says that, when he comes to Gilgal, he will tell Saul what, is, what to do. That is, he'll give him the military strategy. Saul's action not only forfeited the blessings of God's favor, but also his perfect guidance. You also noticed, that you probably also noticed the detail in verse 10, that Samuel arrived after the burnt offering was offered, but before the peace offering was offered. And it was the peace offering that indicates that the offerer was already reconciled to and in covenant with God. In God's economy, the transgression and the consequences are often the same thing. Saul wanted to do things his own way, and now he has that opportunity. We can find another national consequence in verse 17, if you look at the text. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. These raiding parties went three different directions, one to the north, one to the east, and one to the west. And Saul and Jonathan and their armies could do nothing to check the advance of this Philistine aggression. In addition to this, as the Philistines ravaged the land, they, they removed all of the blacksmith shops and confiscated any weapons they could find. Any farmer looking to sharpen his implements had to go to the Philistines and pay exorbitant prices to get his tools sharpened and put in working order. The situation became so dire in Israel that on the eve of the battle, no one had weapons except for Saul and Jonathan. Two swords. And here we must end by observing what would have been the most terrifying to all of Israel it seems that God's promise that if they disobeyed his commands, they and their king would be swept away. 
But as we think of this, these dire, this dire situation that Saul has led his nation into, we need to step back and we need to think about another king. Another king who came perfectly to live as the eternal king. And we need to see our fulfillment in Christ as we look to that one righteous king. As we have spent our time looking at how the first king of Israel made a great mess out of his moment of greatest trial, it feels necessary that we need to spend a moment looking at how the true king of Israel handled himself during his greatest trial. We need to see how these truths in this passage expressed or find their fulfillment in Christ. And then we can see how the significance of this affects our lives. If you turn with me to the New Testament, I think the the best passage to start with to see how Christ behaved in his greatest trial would be in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5. And as we compare how the first king of Israel behaved under his greatest trial, we'll look at how the final king of Israel behaved in his greatest trial. Verse 7 of chapter 5 says this, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. As we look at this passage, we can see that though the whole, uh, through the whole life was through Jesus' whole life, it was one characterized by prayer. This passage seems to refer to Jesus' prayer specifically in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you look at Matthew chapter 26, it records how Jesus was sorrowful as he was there praying in the garden. It says, Jesus was sorrowful even unto death as he collapsed on his face and prayed to his father. There in the garden, uh, the, right before he's going to the cross, he cried out in verse 39 of Matthew 26, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And here in this moment of greatest trial, Jesus recognizes that he is soon to be offered the cup of God's wrath. And he pleads that this cup might be removed. But in the very same sentence, Jesus qualifies his request by saying, not as I will, but as you will. He returns then to his sleeping disciples and then retreats back for a second prayer. Verse 42 of Matthew 26 says, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he returns to his disciples who have fallen asleep again. And so he comes back to pray for a third time. Verse 44, so leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, this time saying the words, the same words again. And here the physician Luke adds an important detail in verse, in Luke twenty-two forty-four, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus' cries to his father reflect a distress that understands What is about to happen? He is going to bear the wrath of God and the agony of being forsaken by his father. And yet Jesus' faith and the promises of his father allow him to say, not my will, but yours be done. Christ's obedience reveals his unshakable faith in the promises of his father. And if you look, his prayers were answered because of his reverence when the father raised his son from the dead on the third day, not letting his holy one see corruption. But if you look back at Hebrews 5.8, says this, although he was a son, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus in his divinity completely understood what it meant to obey. But it was his humanity. Remember, we've seen that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And here, the 
The writer to the Hebrews tells us that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned through every stage of his life so that Jesus, the sinless one, could stand before his accusers silent, trusting in the promises of God as he was beaten and nailed to the cross. John Murray states it this way, but there was a perfecting of development and growth in the course and path of his obedience. He learned obedience. The heart and mind and will of the Lord were forged in the furnace of temptation and suffering. It's what he learned in that experience of temptation and suffering that he was able to be obedient unto death, even death upon his cross. It was only as having learned obedience in the path of inerrant and sinless obedience to the will of the, God, of the, will of the Father that his heart and mind and will were framed to the point of being able to freely and voluntarily yield up his life in death Upon the cross. It was through this course of obedience and of learning obedience that he was made perfect as Savior. It is obedience learned through suffering, perfected through suffering, and consummated in the suffering of death upon the cross that defines his work and accomplishment as the author of salvation. It was by obedience he secured our salvation because it was by obedience he wrought the work that secured it, end quote. Verse 9 reminds us, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. In the face of his greatest trial, we see a great and glorious king. In his greatest trial, he obeyed to the fullest, suffered to the utmost, to secure his eternal throne and inheritance for all who turned to him in faith. It was through Christ's obedience, forged in suffering, that Christ secured eternal blessings for all who would come to him. So friends, this morning as we consider Saul's failure and Christ's triumphs, what does that mean for us? How should we understand the obedience that requires faith and requires sacrifice and receives blessing? Well, first of all, for those who have not repented of your sin and turned in faith to Christ, may today be the day you recognize your place before a holy God. May you see that God is holy and righteous and that we stand before him condemned to sinners, that we have violated his holy law. But Jesus provided a way as he learned obedience through his suffering. And may this morning, may you turn to Christ in faith and in obedience. And for those of you who have turned to Christ in obedience and faith, you must continue to live the gospel daily. May you continue to reveal your faith through your obedience. Whether you're facing the greatest trial you have ever known or another Monday morning, God's promises are sufficient for you. Your prayers and laments have been heard by our faithful high priest who suffered far beyond what we could imagine in order to learn obedience so that he might become a faithful and sympathetic high priest to minister to you in your hour of need. Oh, may you plead your cause to him so that he might bring you comforts and wisdom and soothe your soul with the peace that surpasses understanding. May you continually, or may you continue to willingly sacrifice in obedience. Far from being an extreme example, Christ's work on the cross, his life as well, should become a model in which we learn that we must learn obedience through our suffering and our sacrifice. Jesus taught us that a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. May we recognize that even though he was the son of God, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. 
we must come to know that we are called to learn obedience in the same way. And we must remember that in our greatest darkness, Jesus is the light of the world that manifests the goodness of God to those in their time of need. And may you continue to receive the blessings that come from obedience. As you go throughout your days and weeks, may you increase in your obedience to the Father and your submission to his will as you walk as Jesus did. And as you faithfully follow the commands of God, may you recognize that you were, may you continually recognize that you were once dead, but now alive in Christ. You were once enemies, but now sons and daughters of God. You were once servants of sin, but now you are bound to Christ. And that your union with him was granted to you through his life of obedience, his voluntarily suffering in this world, his sacrificial death and his glorious resurrection. And now he is seated at the Father's right hand, making constant intercession as our sympathetic and faithful high priest and as our glorious king who will one day return to claim his kingdom. So until that day you see your Savior face to face, may you continue to rejoice in hope to be patient in tribulation, and to be constant in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the work that you have done for us through your Son, Jesus. And Father, we pray that even as we think of your commands and we think of your promises, we ask that you will help us to have a mind like Christ. That when we hear your promises as we walk through the valley, that we can say, not my will, but yours be done. We pray these things in the name of your Son, through his power. Amen.